I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 5. We've come to the end of our chapter here, Luke chapter 5. We're looking at verses 33 through 39 this afternoon. I was reading an article this week by Jim Johnston. He says this, The most miserable Christians I've seen are those who live with a foot in both worlds. And he's talking about those who live with one foot in heaven and one on earth and who are really kind of clinging to both whenever it's convenient for them. And it leads to anxiety. It leads to depression, despair, um, really miserable, um, miserable Christians. And so... The kind we've looked at last week, the kind of person that Jesus calls to repentance is one who acknowledges his sin, who, who's come to an end of himself in the sense that he's re- he recognizes that he comes with nothing to offer. He doesn't come to try and earn a place in heaven. He doesn't, he doesn't come, um, um, you know, asking for a particular place or, or a certain level of, of growth. He, he comes just simply clinging. To Christ and His righteousness, content to offer Him praise and to and to live a life of gratitude. Right, the righteous, those who come with a sense of something that they have to offer, have no need of Christ, or at least not of all of Christ. They can take care of part of it. So His opponents, to that teaching that He gave previously, now here respond with another question. And yet, in, when you compare this passage with um, Matthew and Mark, it, it does seem that this is not in chronological um, connection, that, there, that, that the questions that the disciples of John and the Pharisees ask at this point weren't necessarily at that same feast. Um, it doesn't seem to be the case when you're reading in Matthew and Mark. And so the likely, likely case is that Luke includes it here for the thematic connection. These are another example of the kinds of questions and complaints that were being brought to Jesus, um, questions and concerns about the way he was living and, and, the, and the, really the life he was promoting, right, that he was calling his disciples to live. And so when they looked at, at his disciples partying, it, they began to question whether they were really uh, committed to a life of piety. Um, and so that's where what we find here once again is, is these, these disciples of John and these disciples of the Pharisees are coming, really wondering why are Jesus and his disciples frequently at odds with religious leaders of the day? Why does it seem like they're constantly at odds? I mean, and if, if you lived at this time and you had any desire... To be a part of the church, you had a, a, a high respect for the Pharisees. And, and clearly the impact of John's ministry was significant. And so they, they looked at these disciples of the Pharisees and these disciples of John and they said, why are they doing things that are different from Jesus' disciples? And that's the question that we'll look at here, specifically in regard to fasting. All right, and what we'll see is that Christ's presence ushered in such a, a radical new protocol that was filled with celebration and joy. And that's inconsistent with the practice of the Pharisees in their, the way that they fasted. 
So we'll have to tease that out because it's not so much that he's attacking fasting in general here. In fact, if you recall, not too long ago, he was in the wilderness for 40 days fasting. And there was a purpose behind it, but the purpose for Jesus' fast was not the same purpose as the Pharisees' fasting. And we'll make that clear here. So we're going to read this passage, but before we do, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this text and this um, opportunity to once again see what it means and, and how it can apply to our lives. We pray that you would do a work in our hearts. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Soften our hearts to respond to this truth in an appropriate way. And that you would be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So read with me, Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new For he says, the old is good. Amen. This is God's holy word. We'll begin here with a question about fasting. Um, And really, there's, there's two sections in this passage. 33 through 35 deals with the question and Jesus' initial answer. And then verses 36 through 39 is is just supporting arguments um, in the form of a parable. So it's really all about answering this question of fasting for him. Um, and the disciples of John, we know from Matthew and Mark, were also present during this time. And so the question is, is very relevant. They're, they're all standing right there and they're saying, hey, these disciples uh, and, and the Pharisees' disciples, they fast and pray, uh, but yours eat and drink. Yours seem to be at the parties all the time. You're, you're, you seem to be... In fellowship with these people that, that the Pharisees are wanting to avoid. And I think what's happening here is the Pharisees have, have brought along, this is uh, what Calvin brings up, and I think he's, he's probably correct, he, that, um, that the Pharisees are trying to bring division between John's disciples and the disciples of Jesus, right? They, they want to stir up division here. So they're saying, hey, have you noticed? That they can't, they can't kind of find parties all the time, and I don't really notice that they ever fast, that they ever take time to, to really fast and pray. Now, the praying here, they were praying people, but, but I think what they're doing is he's associating praying in that form of fasting. So oftentimes when you fast, the purpose is to spend time in prayer. And so fasting and praying go together. They go hand in hand in this question. Right, so the Pharisees have come to try to bring division, and they're asking, are the disciples of Jesus unconcerned with piety? Are they, 
when we look at the people who, who are recognized as the most religious, as the most sincere in their relationship with God, we see them doing some things pretty regularly. I didn't, the Pharisees had a practice of fasting twice a week. Um, I think it's, I can't remember the days, Monday and Thursday or something like that, but they evenly divided it up and twice a week they would fast those days. And we know from, I think it's Matthew 6, that they disfigure their face, they, they, put, they whiten their faces with ash, they, they make them look very, you know, just distraught and, and hungry, you know, so that everyone would know, oh, they're fasting. Uh, they're, they're a Pharisee and they're fasting. They're so holy. And, and so when, when they see Jesus' disciples not engaging in that practice, they're, they're wondering, that they're inquiring. Um, and, and so whether the question is sincere or not, I think it's a true concern that's not only on the heart of the Pharisees or the disciples of John, I think even some sincere uh, followers who maybe are, are tagging along are beginning to wonder, why are they always at odds? Why is he always rebuking these people? And so Jesus reveals in his answer that his identity. I mean, he, he makes it very clear in verse 34. Can you make the guests, the wedding guests, fast while the bridegroom is with them? This not only reveals his identity, but it also questions the opponent's recognition of his identity. Because obviously they've rejected Jesus already as the Messiah. They don't believe that he that his coming and his being there with them is is cause for great rejoicing, cause for great celebration. And they certainly don't recognize him as any kind of bridegroom that the Old Testament would speak of. And in fact, when you look at the Old Testament passages here, um, We'll we'll see actually in a, in a little bit. Um, we're going to look at a few of them, but we'll see that the bridegroom is always a reference to God, and it's a divine name. And so he, he's saying, "Hey, you're asking my disciples," and he's he's equating the disciples with the wedding guests and he as the bridegroom. So that would put them in the category of of sort of the wedding party. Right? These are the people who would spend the week at a wedding. And enjoying the celebration. In fact, the rabbis um, forbid fasting during a wedding, especially for those who are in that wedding party. We're spending that time with the with the bridegroom. Um, it, it was a time of celebration. It was a time of rejoicing. All right. So um, obviously, by not re- by rejecting who Jesus is, they have to continue to mourn. Right? They continue to mourn for the bridegroom's appearing for his coming, for this Messiah who would come. But Jesus also makes it clear that in the future, he'll be taken from them. Or the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And they will fast in those days. All right? Then they'll fast again. So is fasting still relevant today? Yes. Because the, the, the being taken away is a reference to the crucifixion. And so as it, this whole time between the crucifixion and Christ's return is a time of both rejoicing, of celebration, as well as a waiting and a hoping. And, a, and it's, it, it's filled with longing 
and even even a mourning right, for his return. But at this point in time, while he was with them, it would not have been proper for them to fast in the same way that the Pharisees did. So fasting in the Old Testament was only prescribed on the Day of Atonement. There's only one day of the, of the year where the entire church would fast right, on that Day of Atonement. But there were several individuals and several examples, as you read through the Old Testament, that uh, of people who take voluntary oaths um, upon themselves to fast. Um, and, and so it wasn't, it wasn't improper to do so. But in terms of the law, in terms of what was required, it was one day a year. And other than that, there's three types of fasting in the Old Testament. We see in the book of Judges, in Second Chronicles, in Ezra, in Nehemiah, as well as Esther, we see times of crisis where uh, the people were called to fast or called to take a time um, of either a few days or a period of days where they would, where they would um, fast and cry out to the Lord for deliverance. Secondly, we see... Uh, associated with confession, right, with repentance. So they would they would mourn over their sin right, in, in sackcloth and ashes, and they would fast. And you see that example in First Samuel, in Joel, and Jonah. And then thirdly, you see it associated with mourning, just mourning the loss of a, a loved one um, or mourning some tragic uh, thing that has happened. So you see that in First Samuel, in Second Samuel, and in First Chronicles. And that seems to be where the Pharisees are most associating their fasting with. Their twice-a-week fasting is a mourning for God to come and rescue them from their plight. And so it immediately puts them and their fasting at odds with Christ if he is the true bridegroom and he's present with them. Because as, they, as their own rabbinic tradition would say, it's improper for you to fast when the bridegroom is present. Okay, so look at, um, you don't have to, to turn there, but um, I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 62, verses 4 and 5, referring to the bridegroom. We read this, you shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her. And your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. And if you've heard a, in some weddings, they'll use this phrase. I, I use it usually as a call to worship. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And so this is God's people rejoicing over, his, over a marriage to God. And, and, and God begins to use this language. He uses it in Jeremiah, Ezekiel 16. We, he talks about his faithless bride. Um, and, and yet, he responds, just like we looked at this morning in Judges, by, by maintaining his covenant faithfulness to her. So she's faithless. And you see a picture of that very graphically in the book of Hosea, in the early passages of Hosea and what that prophet was called to do. Um, but just looking at verses 14 through 16, what Hosea was called to do in, in marrying a faithless bride, um, he was an example of Israel and their faithless relationship with God. 
And so in, the, in terms of God bringing upon them a curse and judgment and punishment, he begins to list that out in Hosea 2. And then right in the middle, almost out of, out of the blue, you, you go from punishment to blessing. In verse 14, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Is that picture of God chasing after his bride, right, of, of, of searching for her. She's sold herself into slavery and prostitution, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to track her down and I'm going to allure her. I'm going to offer her something that is far more satisfying than anything she's found out there. And she's going to return, right, in verse 15. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. So they were, at that time, just like in Judges, worshiping God right alongside Baal and other false idols. And, and God says, you'll no longer refer to me in that way. You'll call me your, you'll say my husband. This is, this is who the bridegroom is. When he's talking about the bridegroom, it's associated to God. And so Jesus uses this. He's clearly saying he identifies with God here. He identifies himself with bringing divine presence onto earth. And, and we see in the New Testament, uh, any reference to the bridegroom is a reference to Jesus Christ. So they have a consistent application of this being to Jesus. Just looking at um, Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 10, we read this. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold you to, testi- uh, to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So you see this reference there to to the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, a clear reference to Jesus Christ and that wedding that awaits, the consummation of that wedding that awaits in the new heavens and new earth. So this is a paradigm shift that Jesus is, is bringing upon um, the, the people of God. Right? He's ushered in a time of celebration. And that time of celebration would be seriously hindered by fasting. Right, it, that's what fasting does. It, think about someone inviting you over for a meal when you're in the middle of a fast. You would be restricted from accepting that invitation, or at least you'd have to tell them, "Well, I'll come, but I'll just watch you guys eat." Right? I mean, it would restrict your celebration, and that's not to say fasting is inappropriate, right? But fasting in these terms, when Christ was present with them, would have been inappropriate. And that's what he's arguing here. But at the same time now, bringing it to today, fasting is not optional. Right? He says they will fast again. Right? They will begin fasting again at that point. So once he's taken away from them, 
fasting returns. Now, that doesn't mean we need to get on a regimen of two times a week like the Pharisees and fast all the time. And there is no designation of a corporate day of fasting. We don't even have one day of the year that all of us would fast at the same time. But there may come times where we find ourselves in crisis situations, where we find ourselves wrestling and seeking God for wisdom and direction, um, where we ask the church and whoever's capable and, and willing to, in, to voluntarily take a fast with us and to, and to cry out to the Lord for direction, for provision. Um, these are very these are appropriate things to do, and fasting in terms of of also waiting for his return, looking forward to his second coming, recognizing that we have not arrived right that we still await that consummation and so um Jesus supports this answer now with a parable and and I'm just going to briefly go over each of the and there's really three different components of the parable um he says, no one tears a piece from a new garment. Um, and then in verse 37, no one puts new wine into old wineskin. And then in verse 39, and no one after drinking. So that no one is sort of the different sections of his, of his parable here. First of all, he talks about garments. And he says, you, no one tears off a new garment in order to patch up an old. Because what you do there is you just ruin both garments. So you can't. The, the, the patch, the fabric won't match the, the old garment, and now you've got a, a nicely, freshly torn brand new garment. So you've really ruined both garments. And the other, um, I can't remember which account it is, maybe it's Matthew or Mark, but one of them has, talks about the garments um, separating after the first wash. So either way, the idea is that they're not compatible with one another. It doesn't work to follow that approach, to put old with new. Okay, secondly, you see the same principle with the new wine. As new wine ferments, it would burst old wineskins. And so you have to have fresh wineskins to put young wine into. And then lastly, and maybe the more confusing one is this verse 39. But new wine must be put in, or sorry, 39. And no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says the old is good. This is most likely a reference, it's sort of an ironic reference to the Jews who have rejected Christ. It's those who are saying, I'm, I'm satisfied with the old way. This new way that you're bringing is contrary to what I'm used to, and I don't, I don't really want any part of it. Right? So he's saying, once you've tasted the old one, you sort of get settled into that taste. You don't want the new. It's really a, a, a slight rebuke. So the connection here to fasting is that the old way of doing things is being transformed. It's being renewed, trying to combine this legalistic tradition, which really was not even an Old Testament law. It was an added man-made law that the Pharisees had created to, to then judge everyone else who's not as pious as them because they don't fast twice a week. Right? That's the old legalistic tradition that's trying that they're trying to now say, how does that fit with Christ's kingdom? How does that fit with what Christ is doing and calling his disciples to do? And Jesus is saying it doesn't work. The old way that you're used to has to be radically transformed. Right? You're going to have to take on this new approach if you want to understand. So the two systems are are incompatible. It's a new stage of redemptive history, and it calls for new practices, right? And a recovery, truly, 
of, of the authority of God's word over tradition. And so it's hard to overcome the power of tradition. Right? There are plenty of modern examples where secondary matters are elevated to primary importance. Right? Uh, our tendency here is to overemphasize the wrong things. Right? And that tendency to do that implies the frailty of our unity around the main thing. And if we're constantly being divided over secondary matters, then how strong is the unity around the main thing? But what we've done is we've supplanted the main thing with these secondary matters. We've forgotten what's central. And so we have to beware, I think, in terms of um, just elevating our own preferences for the ministries we have at the church, for the way we have our worship service, um, you know, every element, the way it, the way it functions. Right? There can be there can be those who, who would complain it should be done differently, right? And we have a preference for for different um, ways of doing church. But if we're committed to the main thing, then those secondary matters remain secondary; they don't become divisive. As really what what we find is the case here with the Pharisees. They they make it a divisive issue. Now this isn't arguing that new is always good, right? That new is relevant and good and appropriate, and that old is always bad and outdated. That's not what Jesus is saying. Uh, the new here is Jesus Christ, and He's always relevant. Um, he'll be forever relevant. Two thousand years ago, into eternity, right? He'll be what we want to make the main thing. So Christ's presence has turned sorrow and mourning a time and a long time, 400 years of silence, right, into a time of celebration and joy for those who recognize who he was. But there does remain this already not yet component. Right? We talk about that every once in a while because it's, it's this it's this season we live in now where we have partial fulfillment in Christ coming and, and bringing us salvation. Right? And we, we understand the gospel and the implications of the gospel, but we await that full consummation of being with him without sickness, without sorrow and mourning, without rebellion and sin, without sadness, but joy. We still await that full consummation. So there should be, we should expect there to be in our lives seasons of despair that will interrupt uh, joy from time to time. Right? We don't want to minimize the celebration, but, there, but we should anticipate and expect that as long as we remain in this fallen world, in these fallen bodies with our fallen minds and our sinful tendencies, that we're going to enter into seasons of despair. But the primary challenge here that Jesus is addressing to those who were present while he was there with them was those who remain gloomy, those who remain in a state of mourning because they do not acknowledge Jesus for who he is. They don't recognize that he's come as the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. And so other, in other words, it's those who 
have one foot in heaven and one foot on earth. Those who, who are still looking forward to a future that's already really come in, into their presence. Right? But they're, they're so locked into their own way of doing things that they didn't see it. And so he has a question about fasting and then he has this parable that supports his answer to it. And it all amounts to Christ's presence ushering in a, a new protocol that's filled with celebration and joy. And I think this is how J.C. Ryle summarizes this passage real helpfully. He says this, It will signify little at the last day what we thought about fasting and eating and drinking and ceremonies. Those probably won't be the heavy things on our mind on that last day. He says, Did we repent? And bring forth fruits meet with repentance. Did we behold the Lamb of God by faith and receive him as our Savior? All of every church who are found right on these points will be saved. All of every church who are found wrong on these points will be lost forevermore. And so this this truth that Christ is proclaiming is, is both reason to celebrate for his disciples, and it's reason to strike fear into his opponents, those who had rejected him, because he's putting them on the spot here, proclaiming himself to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And if they continue to reject him, they'll be lost. So the question for you is, have you repented and do you believe? And are you continuing to do so? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you.